0: So I want to begin with thinking about one of the greatest lies that exists in the world today. And that lie is that mankind is, at his core, basically good. We've all heard this. Many people still think this. And if you still think this, especially after this sermon, please come and talk to me. But we're trained to think if I do more good than bad, or whatever my own version of of good is... And if I am on the the right side of history, meaning whatever the collective culture has deemed to be right, and and if I get upset with what they get upset with, and if I ignore what they ignore, then I am essentially good, because I've done more good than bad. And if there's a God, He'll be pleased with me too, because of course I'm pleased with me. This is the prevailing view in our culture. But this is nothing new though. This has been going on throughout history. Some of the greatest debates and uh, tensions within the church are over this. In the 4th century, Augustine debated with Pelagius. And what was at stake there was that at the core of mankind, there's enough goodness in our hearts where we can wield ourselves to choose God and choose to please Him in our own strength. The church condemned Him. But this arose throughout history. This also came out of the Reformation where the followers of Calvin refuted the followers of Arminius. And there's this debate on how good is man really? Is there enough goodness within us that we can can choose God or with just a little nudge from God, we'll do the rest ourselves? This is also something that is prevalent in our society. And this was really kind of spurned on in the Enlightenment. And so in the 18th century, throughout most of Christendom, what we would call Christian history from the time of the apostles, really up until the 18th century, the, the church held the authority on authority. Or like they, they held the end on authority. But in the Enlightenment, you had people who said, many philosophers and thinkers Kant and Hume and even Voltaire. Uh, you don't know those names. It doesn't matter. But what, what does matter is the, the prevailing idea was putting reason, what we think is right, over revelation, what God declares to be right. And those ideas really helped shape and, and, and shift culture. And we don't realize how much of those ideas are still built into what we think every day. We've been conditioned for these things. We've been conditioned to think that what I deem as right and good should be the final standard. Or even if I don't say that, the Bible should still stand up to what I think is right and and, and what is good. And if it doesn't make sense to me, then it can't be true. There's a reason why we read Isaiah 55 earlier, where God reminds us that His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. We need to remember that when our own flesh and our culture around us fights against that. But really, what we're dealing with is we've lost the grasp of our own depravity. Our own sinfulness. Our own inability within ourselves to be righteous before a holy God. And this is not new to Augustine or anyone else. This has gone on throughout history. And this is the exact same problem that Jesus is facing in our passage this morning. Because this is not a modern problem, but this is a human problem. We, in our own righteousness, in our own eyes, want to stand before God on our own two feet. And we're going to see what happens when the scribes, the self-righteous, who are trusting in themselves, come face to face with Jesus, and He erodes their self-confidence from underneath them. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to Mark chapter 2. I'm going to pick up where we left off. We're going to look at five Uh, weighty, powerful verses in the calling of one of his disciples. So picking up in chapter 2, verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, "'Follow me.' And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, "'Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners?' When Jesus heard it, he said to them, "'Those who are well have no need of a physician.'" but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Lord, what a humbling reminder every time we open Your Word that You are just and righteous and holy and good and perfect. And we fall so short of even our own expectations, that mankind has no hope without a gracious and loving God. Lord, I pray this morning that Your Word would search us, that we would allow Your Word to examine us, that we would not fight against it, we would not hold on to our own righteousness or our own ideas of good. We would only cling to Jesus and the only one who is truly good, Lord. Sometimes we read the scriptures and they seem so far away and so disconnected to us. But they are as vital now as they ever have been. Mankind does not change. We have not changed. We still have the same problems. But more importantly, you have not changed. You were the same yesterday, today, and forever, as is Your Word. Lord, in our day and time, we do not know how to determine what is true and what is not. Who is lying to us and who is leading us astray? We will drive ourselves crazy if we try. But we know that there is no lying within You. Every man may be a liar, but You are true. You will never lead us astray. Lord, let us turn to You and trust in You. Let us cling to Your Word. Let us cling to the unshakable hope of our salvation. That the world may shake and crumble and go to hell. But in Christ, we are always sure and secure. Lord, we praise You for this. That You have brought us into Your kingdom that is unshakable. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this account we're going to look at this morning is the calling of Levi, one of Jesus' disciples. It's almost identical to Matthew's account in chapter 9, and also Luke's account in chapter 5. And there's a couple additional details that Luke gives us that are really helpful, and so we'll, we'll bring those in as we walk through. But let's jump right in. Chapter 2, verse 13. He went out again by the sea. That seems like a kind of throwaway line, but what I love about Jesus' ministry is there's, there's beauty in the simplicity in the way that he lives his life. If we remember what happened last week and what happened in the previous verses, he was at Simon Peter's house and he's reclining and, and everyone's coming. All the crowds are gathering. Everywhere he goes, there's a ton of people. And if any of you have ever lived in a congested city or you've had a time where you're just around a lot of people, what do you want to do the next day? I want to go out and walk by the sea. There's something Peaceful and something restorative about being by water and being in the fresh air and just getting some peace and quiet, being alone with your thoughts, being alone with the Lord, and being able to talk to your Father in heaven without interruption. And of course, this is great until, for Jesus, this never lasts long, until all the crowds were coming to him and he was teaching them. And this pattern of his Galilean ministry continues as he walks around the Sea of Galilee from town to town, uh, typically around Capernaum. People are going to seek him out. People are going to come after him. And what does he do? He spends time with those who seek him out. He teaches them. He is there coming to him, as we ta- looked at a couple weeks ago, always to see something new. What? Show me something amazing, Mr. Magic Man. But what he does is he teaches them. He points them to the Father. He opens the Scriptures. He challenges them according to God's Word. They're looking for something temporary. He points them to the Eternal. And this is kind of the rhythm of of His day. Be around the crowds, go to be with the Father. People come again, rinse, wash, repeat. But in this, He is not unaware of His surroundings. With all the throngs of people, that means a lot, who are coming to Him, He does not miss his own. Look at the detail here in verse 14. So the crowds are coming around him, and as he passed by, he saw Levi. All the crowd, meaning everybody. But he sees Levi. He knows Levi. He spots him out. All those people, all the great crowd, he says, you I know. You are mine. And he gives The simple call to a simple man. But this call is a little different than others. There's a reason that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all bring this up. I want you to see why. And now we may just gloss over this. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in a tax booth. Well, a tax booth. We don't have those today, but I'm sure it's something they had back then. And we just gloss over this. Why is this particular situation brought up in all of the synoptic gospels, those who have a synopsis of Jesus' ministry? Well, if we don't understand the Roman tax system, this doesn't carry much weight for us. So let's dig in there a moment. So remember we talked about Jesus' home base is in Capernaum, kind of the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And we talked about there being this international trade route from Syria, which is hundreds of miles to the north where, where Antioch is, where, where kind of Paul's missionary base was, all the way down to Egypt, very far south. So this is a long trade route, and there were three main tax collection hubs in that area. And the first one being in Capernaum. So there's a lot of money that's, that's, that's flowing through there. And if you're a a monster political and military machine like the Roman Empire was, you need an extensive tax system. They're like the IRS on steroids, if you can imagine that. Every part of your life was was taxed, and these tax collectors, they were relentless. They would be in, in every trade area, and they would go around often making daily uh, daily tax um whatever they would do daily, they would, they, they would go around and um, take taxes from people, and I don't know why I can't figure out what that's called, um, from people. And so this is a little different than what we would understand too, because okay, yeah, you know, the IRS takes it automatically out of, our, out of our check. But imagine if someone shows up every time you get paid and says, where's my cut? Where's my cut? And there were multiple levels of tax collectors. Now, Levi was just a regular tax collector, but someone like Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector. He was, he was the guy who Levi kicked up to, that everyone would pull their piece of the pie, and then he would kick it up to the Roman centurion or whoever, or, or the, and then the governor, and then it made it up to, to Caesar. There was a lot of palms that needed to be greased on the way up. And So this is also extensive because everybody was a small business owner. There were no corporations, no one worked for Walmart. There was the fisherman, there was the mason, there was the iron worker, there was the baker. Everyone had a business. And if you didn't have a business, you worked for someone who had a business. They may have had several servants or their, their children work for them. So you got a lot of small business entities and you got someone like Levi who goes from small business owner to small business owner to small business owner daily. What did you make today? What did you catch today? Caesar wants his cut. And so obviously, they were not well liked, because especially if you were a Jew and you did this to your own people, you were getting rich off the backs of your own people. So this, this profession attracted the, the uh, enterprising and the shrewd and the unscrupulous, those without scruples, meaning they didn't care. They didn't care what happened to those that they overtaxed. They didn't care that everyone else was getting poor and barely able to feed their families while they were getting rich. So they were hated. They were known as extortionists and traitors to their people. They were the epitome of greed. These are the greedy people of society. And so much so that they were completely removed from Jewish society. Let me tell you some of the things that would happen if you decided to be a tax collector and collect tax on your people. They were called thieves and murderers. They were often shamed. Their families would disown them. They were expelled from the synagogue, and we talked about that in John. The synagogue is the center of uh, Hebrew life, and if you're expelled from it, you have no share or connection with your people. Their, Their testimony was not even allowed in the Jewish courts because they could not be trusted. Their money was considered dirty. You would not even take payment from a tax collector. And then the scribes and the Pharisees took it a step further that if you lied to a tax collector, you were not breaking the law because they they did not deserve to be told the truth. This is who Jesus encounters. This is who, of all the people going out to see Him, He says, you, you extortionist, you greedy thief and traitor, you follow Me. Now this these words to a Hebrew reader would have been scandalous and unheard of two powerful words follow me and he rose and followed me isn't it amazing the power of the word of god jesus doesn't need to convince him he doesn't need to give him Uh, miraculous signs or all kinds of proof the power of the word of God proclaimed over the life of a dead man follow me and there's life in this man and he rose and followed him Luke includes the important detail leaving everything this was a total and complete conversion He left his money, his status with the Roman Empire, leaving everything. This is how powerful the gospel call is on someone's life. Follow me, and if you have ears to hear, nothing else matters. Levi rises and follows after him. This name, Levi, also Matthew, if you're confused why he doesn't appear in the list of disciples Levi, uh, it it means attached, and we learn that in in Genesis, and Matthew means a gift of Yahweh. Uh, Typically, they would have a Jewish name and a a Greek name. We don't know why he's got two Jewish names. Um, Even in his own account in Matthew's gospel, he refers to himself as Matthew. So it seems like Levi uh, was his earlier name. We don't really know why, but going forward, his name is Matthew, just in case you were wondering. So before we go on to our next, uh, our next section, I want you to think about a couple things. Just from two small verses, what do, we, what do we learn here? Well, one, without God choosing and calling sinners, Levi, like us, would continue to be greedy, would continue to be self-centered, would continue to be focused on what builds us up. just like He does with Levi or Matthew. He sees Him. In the midst of all the chaos, I know You. You are Mine. My Spirit has given You ears to hear. Follow Me. And He leaves everything, just like the other disciples did. They were going about their business. They were doing their daily routines as fishermen by the sea. And He says, follow Me. And they leave everything and follow Him. So it doesn't matter whether you're a lowly fisherman Or a hated tax collector. The call to follow me. The word of God accomplishes its purpose. And I can almost guarantee that if you were an early reader of these gospels and you were a Jew, either a a Jewish convert or someone who's trying to weigh this this Christianity thing, it would be easy to feel self-righteous. Well, I'm not a tax collector. I'm not like like Him. I'm not that bad. Do I really need to follow Jesus? The other thing we need to be very careful of when we read Scripture or we see others, we need to know that we are the tax collector. We are the one who is shameful, who should not be trusted, who has no portion with the people of God. And apart from Christ saying, you are mine, follow me, we deserve Everything that was hurled at Matthew from his people. Praise God he has mercy on sinners. Praise God he doesn't fixate on the external. Praise God he doesn't see us as the world sees us. Praise God that the righteous one says, follow me, I will be your righteousness. Amen. Another vital tidbit here is that Levi is Matthew. Matthew who wrote the first book in the New Testament. Matthew who wrote the Gospel for the Hebrews. Matthew who was hated by the Hebrews. His entire stated purpose in the Gospel is that this Jesus, He is the Son of David. He is the rightful King of Israel. All of the Old Testament Scriptures proclaim His name. He takes the most unworthy, unlikely person and gives him the ministry of writing a gospel account that declares who Jesus is to the very people he ripped off. That is amazing. God can take the unlikely and do the extraordinary with them. So He was greedy. He was attached to his things. But Jesus calls him and he becomes a gift of Yahweh. And Next we're going to see how Levi responds here, picking up in verse 15, and as he reclined at table in his house, uh, we don't know if the key here is Levi or if it's Jesus, but both are true. Luke tells us that Levi threw Jesus a feast, as he should. He threw a feast in his house and invites all his friends. Picking up in verse 15, and he reclined at table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So, what we learn here by reclined is uh, we've talked about this before. If you don't know how Jews would eat, there's a usually a U-shaped table uh, or more like couches that they would they would lean on. Uh, you would eat. You would lean on your left elbow, eat with your right hand, and there would be various couches and tables if you have a larger house, and everyone would kind of lay down, and the servants would would come. In the middle of this U-shaped, and they, they, would, they would serve you food. So Jesus is not just attending this party. He is reclining. He is, he is resting. He is relaxing. He is feasting with tax collectors and sinners. And his disciples are, are with him. Jesus is at ease. And this broke all of the social norms. And we know how bad it was to associate with one tax collector. Imagine being a rabbi and being in a house full of tax collectors and sinners. The worst of the society, the the seedy, if you will. Those who the Jewish people wanted nothing to do with. If you notice, I made your outline really easy for you to follow along. The greedy, the seedy, the needy. Took me a long time to work on that. Um, So tax collectors and sinners. What does he mean by sinners here? This is not the general term, sinners, as if we are all sinners. And the Jews would view sin a a, a little bit differently. Because the teachers of the law considered themselves righteous. Now the sinners were those habitual, practicing sinners. Those who lived as lawbreakers. Those who showed no concern for the law of Moses or all the rabbinical laws, the, the laws that the rabbis added on to the laws of Moses. They were the opposite of the good, upstanding religious and social elite who looked down their nose on anyone who couldn't follow all of their rules. These sinners were one step above or below the tax collectors, depending on where they landed on the unrighteous depth chart. And this was not a good crowd of people to be around, especially if you're Jesus, who's a rabbi. We'll get there in just a moment. Or just the word "rabbi" just means teacher. He wasn't a rabbi in the official sense. But one other detail here: for there were many who followed him. There's a house full of people. Again, everywhere Jesus goes, there are many. Now, what's interesting about that is that there were many who followed him, who walked after him. Does that mean that they're believers? Not necessarily. We don't know. We don't know the hearts of all of these people. But what we see here is this is the parable of the sower lived out. We're going to deal with that in chapter 4. But the parable of the sower says the gospel seed goes out. Jesus is teaching. He's, he's spreading the good news. And people are following and some are shooting up and it looks like they're, they're going to live. It looks like they're alive. And so they are following him, appearing to respond to the message, appearing to live. But we know that the rocky soil and the thorns will choke them out and will cause them to fall away. But for now, it looks like this is legitimate. There's a reason that we see the call of Levi and not all these other people. There's a a reason why Jesus surrounded Himself with the twelve. There was always going to be crowds that come and go. And in the church, that's always going to happen. and There's nothing new today. Many people are going are gonna to pop up and say, yeah, I love this, this teaching of Jesus until I don't. But Jesus always focused on the twelve. Jesus draw to Himself these twelve young men who would become the new pillars of new Israel, who would be the leaders of leaders, who would plant churches and evangelize all over the world. Now others would come and go, and the crowds as we've seen will come and go. But Jesus knows who are His. And He sees them and He calls them and He preserves them. So it wasn't just Jesus and the tax collectors and sinners. We've got some observers here too in verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that He was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to the disciples, why does He eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now I want you to see here As we always say in our Bible studies, uh, repetition is important. You may have missed this, but the same word is applied to Jesus and the scribes. Jesus saw Levi, and the scribes saw Jesus. Now what's the difference here? Jesus sees this man who is wicked on the outside and has compassion. The scribes see what Jesus is doing, and they criticize him. Jesus sees the heart of man. Man sees the exterior. The contrast of Jesus seeing versus them seeing. That's another cultural thing if you don't understand that many homes, um, especially if you were were rich, would have open courtyards. They would kind of have an open floor plan. Like um, They didn't always lock the uh, gate and close the door when they had a feast, especially rich people. They wanted to show everyone how rich they were. They wanted all the passers-by to see how much food I have, how much wine I have. Look at everyone. I don't think that this is Levi's intent here, but if Jesus is coming to his house, it would be very easy for onlookers to come by and see what's going on. Because in a small town, people talk. And if, hey, if there's a feast and I wasn't invited, why was I not invited? So now you've got these scribes and Pharisees who have nothing to do with the, the, the tax collectors. And now they see that there's There's a party going on. We weren't invited, and it's the worst of the worst. And right in the middle is this guy who claims to be a teacher and his disciples who claim to be faithful followers of God. And so there's a tension here. But as we notice, the one who's considered a sinner invites Jesus into his home and celebrates him. Those who are considered righteous they sin outside and they condemn him. One other piece of information that's, that's helpful for us to know. So you've got the, the, the law of Moses, but you've also got the tradition of the elders. And so the Jewish elders would add on um, additional requirements for those who are upstanding. Those who see themselves as, as prim and proper law-abiding Jews. And one of those traditions of the elders is that a righteous man does not associate with tax collectors and sinners. This was a stated rabbinical law. So they made a point to say, not only are we going to shame them and put them outside of, of our Jewish community, but we're also going to place barriers in place. So if you're a rabbi, you're a teacher, you're a scribe, you're anyone of any importance, you treat them as if they are lepers. So Jesus is flying in the face of their artificial human constraints, the barriers that they've built up for themselves. So on many levels, he is offending the sensibilities of the scribes and the Pharisees who come and witness this. So one thing about this statement. A couple things about this statement. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful that we do not interpret this passage according to our own sensibilities. I love what Jonathan said earlier in his prayer. We have to make sure that we do not interpret Scripture through our view of the world. We must interpret the world around us through Scripture. This statement here, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners, I have heard many Christians ask some version of this question. Why would you hang around with that person? Look how they dress. Look at their hair. How could they possibly be a Christian? Why would you want anything to do with them? I've heard many high-profile Christians look down on and talk down on people who do not look, dress, or do the things that they think they should do. Very Pharisaical. So we must be careful that we are not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Say, why would you be around that person? Thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. And be careful of teachers who teach those things. Sadly, I know many pastors, there are many pastors who build into their lives separation between themselves and the normal people. I'm only going to associate with so-and-so. You're a big donor, you're a nice dresser, I will meet with you. But if you're the guy who stumbles in off the street or the woman who's struggling with addiction, I'll let someone else deal with you. I've seen that far too often, and we have to be careful not to be guilty of what Jesus condemns here. But there's also the other side. I've heard this very often. Well, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. That's what we should be doing, right? When Christians themselves, I've seen brothers who I love drinking way too many beers, saying, well, Jesus hung around tax collectors and, and sinners. Or Christians that I love engaging in depraved entertainment and and, and activities saying, well, Jesus hung around tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was among them as the physician, not a patient, and not a participant. We have to be very careful in that as well. We have to be very careful that we are not found having more in common with the world than Christ. And yes, we absolutely should go to the lost, those who are spurned off by culture, pointing them to Jesus, not trying to win them by living like them, not trying to win them by imitating them, showing them that we love them as Jesus loved them, but always teaching them and pointing them to the physician. This is why verse 17 is essential in understanding this. And I want to lean in here, and we'll spend our last few moments in verse 17. One of the most powerful in all of Scripture. This is the insight to the nature of the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel message. This helps us to understand God's redemptive plan of saving sinners. Jesus hears them speak to the disciples. He hears the words of the scribes, and how does he respond? There are many ways he could respond, but he shakes their whole world up. And when Jesus said it, excuse me. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, "Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." i want to spend a few moments here. This is where some of you are going to be confused and caught off guard, uh, and that's good because I want because if you don't understand this, I want you to shake. I want this to shake you up. When Jesus speaks of a physician, he's getting to the heart of what mankind's real need is and their greatest need is jesus is a healer of course we know he can do that but he is a physician of souls as david rightly said last week preaching through verses 1 through 12 jesus first addresses forgiveness of sins and then says yeah i can heal his body too but that's secondary Our greatest need is the healing of our sinful condition. Our greatest need for a physician is to be saved from ourselves. And the reality of it is, we may not see healing in this life. Ultimately, death is batting a thousand. And if you think that that's all Jesus came to do, Or if that's the end-all, be-all, that I have my best life now, you're living a lie. But if you are in Christ, the physician of souls, who heals what is broken between God and man, you will have physical healing in his kingdom. You will be made whole with him forever, and that is far greater than anything that can be restored in this life. But far too often we set the bar too low. And if you understand what type of physician he is, you can rejoice that like Levi, the tax collector, he saw you. He knew you and he called you. And he sent his spirit to turn your dead heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And you can rejoice in that. Because the physician fixed not what I wanted him to, but what I needed and didn't even know I needed. He called me and healed me a sinner. Now here's where some of you might be challenged a little bit. You may have heard that the church should be seen as a hospital, which is true if we see Christ as the great physician and we are all sick and in need of him. It's a, it's a good analogy to put into practice. Been in a lot of churches, been in church my entire life. Most churches, sadly, function like a country club. Far less like a hospital than a country club. People acting like they have it all together. We come dressed up on Sunday. We put our smiles on on Sunday. No one knows what we really need. I don't need anything. I'm a Christian. I'm good. I've got it all together. Living like we're well in and of ourselves. Acting more like the scribes with no need of a great physician i think i'm lying many of you many people you come into contact with who consider themselves christians think that they're good the way they are i have no need for the doctor oh yeah i saw the doctor once prayed a prayer he said i was good i don't i don't need him anymore i'm gonna go on with, with my life yeah i saw the doctor 15 years ago but i'm still good There is no such thing as saying, I believe in Jesus and I don't need him anymore. There is no such thing as saying, I believe in Jesus and now I've got it all together, I'm done. I just got to show up, put my money in the box, dress the way that everyone else thinks I should, appear righteous to the scribes and the Pharisees. All the while, my dark and hardened heart is still standing in my own righteousness. I remember the first time I heard someone say, it is not the good people that go to heaven and the bad people that go to hell. But good people go to hell and bad people go to heaven. I was like, what? I was confused as a young Christian. Some of you are confused right now. Because growing up in the church, I thought it was all these good moral people who looked like they had it together on the outside who were going to heaven and the heathens who sleep in, they're going to hell. Some truth to that. But the principle is this. And let me rephrase some of Jesus' words if you're still, let me rephrase Jesus' words if you're still confused. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. What he's saying here is those who are righteous in their own eyes, those who think that they are well. If you are good in your own eyes, if you have it all together, then you don't need a doctor. Those who have it, who are righteous in their own eyes, he didn't come for them. He didn't go to the cross because you're good as you are. He didn't go to the cross because you were kind of bad. If you're just kind of bad, he could throw a couple band-aids on it and do a couple minor adjustments. You are dead. You are completely wicked to your core. There is not one of us who is righteous on our own. And Jesus had to go to the cross because our sinfulness was that sinful. And his righteousness is that righteous. But if you think you are well, then what do you need me for? Stand before God on your own two feet. But those who know that they are sinners, those who know that they are sick, those who know they can't stand in their own righteousness, they will cry out to the doctor, save me, heal me. That is who I came for. I didn't come to call the righteous in their own eyes. I came to call the ones who know they are sinners. And he says this to the, man, the men standing before him with pride in their eyes and their own righteousness. He's saying this surrounding, surrounded by sinners. People who know they don't belong in the religious community. Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous But sinners. Luke adds the important detail I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I read one very, very faulty commentary this week who says that repentance is never mentioned in here because Jesus loved the sinners right where they were. He's a liar. So you got to be careful. Make sure when you read Scripture, read the whole counsel of God. Because Mark has a purpose and Luke has a purpose. But that little detail. I came to call sinners, not to remain sinners, but sinners to repentance. This is the call to repent and believe. Turn from what you were. Turn to me. Jesus begins his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, with the very important words that summarize this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means that you are so morally bankrupt. You are in such poverty on your own. You have nothing to bring to the table. When you realize that, when you realize that you are a sinner, yours is the kingdom of heaven. When you realize that I need the physician, then, you can turn from yourself and believe in him. I want to look at one of my favorite parables and the greatest examples of this by Jesus himself. So turn one book to the right in Luke. Look, look at Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, I'm going to start in verse 9. This is a perfect illustration. It's like it was tailor-made for it. Luke chapter 18, let me tell you if the see if the, the 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 characters in here sound familiar. Luke 18, verse 9. So he also told this parable, talking about the persistent widow that comes right before it, to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Hmm. And be careful, because all of us have been guilty of that. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Hmm. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Now, remember, repetition whenever we're reading scripture. Look what is repeated here. Look at how this man prays. And we should all repent because every one of us have prayed like this. I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Notice the repetition there. But the tax collector this is one of my this is one of the most beautiful uh, pictures in all of Scripture, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat at his breast, saying, "God, be merciful to me, a sinner." That is who Jesus came to call. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If your sin does not cause you to beat your chest and recognize how unworthy you are of salvation you do not understand your sin. You do not understand the holiness of God. But if you do, that is our justification, our faith in the one who is righteous, our faith in the one who came for our sins. Because He will exalt us. Be very careful not to exalt yourself, as the Pharisee did, because you will be humbled. Those who humble themselves and sit at the kid's end of the table know that they are not worthy to sit near the head of the table. They are exalted by the righteous one. So as we close this morning, I just want you to think about Jesus' interaction with Levi, but also the scribes. the very powerful words of Jesus. It is not those who are well that need a physician, but those who are sick. And we should be a hospital in the best sense of the word. That those who are sick and those who are hurting, those who are in sin, are not coddled, but are given the medication that they need. And it is always the same. Jesus, the great physician, will heal you. You struggle with porn, Jesus, the great physician, will heal you. You can't pay your bills, go to the great physician. You are burdened over mistakes you've made, go to the great physician. You think you are good enough, go to the great physician. We are not doctors, we're not even nurses, we are just orderlies pushing people into surgery again and again and again. He's got the answer. He's got the scalpel. He's got the paddles. He will breathe life into you. That is what the church is. I know I'm preaching to the choir here for most of you, but I want you to be encouraged in this because thank God, our calling is not based on our righteousness, but His Thank God. Jesus does not see us in our weakness and in our frailty as the greedy tax collectors and sinners that we are. So be very careful trusting in your own righteousness. Be very careful thinking that you are good enough. Be very careful thinking that either I don't need to associate with the weak and the lowly and the sinners or... I'm only going to associate with the weak and the lowly and the sinners and act like they do. I really just want to close with this. You can't understand and appreciate the gospel until you understand your greatest need. You can't understand the gospel until you understand how needy you are. You need the great physician. You need the giver of life. You need the one whose call will bring you up and make you leave everything for him. He invites the worst of us to dine at his table. When you understand that you are the worst, then you understand how amazing grace is. And you understand that we can stand on the rock of ages confidently. Let's pray.